Good morning. Good to have those who are here. I'm looking around. I'm thinking there's probably 25 folks here at this point in time. I'm sure more will come in. We're trying to start as close to 10 as possible. I'm sure there are many more joining us online. We are glad that you're able to do so. So very thankful that during this uh, past two-year time, we've been able to put our services online for you to follow us live. And so we're looking forward to this. It'll be a bit of an abbreviated because of the storm that is coming. And so we are looking forward to our time of worship today. Even though it is an unusual day, I trust God will allow us to be able to focus on him, to be able to come together to lift up our hearts in genuine worship and praise to our great God. Those who are at home, I hope you'll be able to sing with us as you see the lyrics on the screen and that you'll be able to engage your heart as best as you can in following the Lord. Let me just uh, take time to go through a few announcements. These, many of these are uh, already in your mind. They've been out, sent out in the email. Our training hour schedule, if weather permits and so on, uh, will be through the end of the month, the 23rd and 30th. Our children's classes will continue. The teens and adults will be here in the auditorium as we walk through uh, our business meeting notes, our annual meeting, and so we have a long handout for that. We were going to give you today or make it available. We hope to be able to get that to you via email, but if not, they are here at the church if you wanted to stop in, or you can, of course, get those next Sunday morning. There's several items of information that will be very useful for you just in knowing what is God is doing in our church at this time. Because of the weather pattern, we have some real cold weather coming in the middle of the week, plus I think COVID for our church is at its highest level. We have many people that have active cases of COVID just getting over COVID. Uh, thankfully, no one has been uh, unusually sick through it, more like flu-type symptoms but we are going to cancel our Sojourners Luncheon for this week, which was scheduled for Thursday. Uh, by God's grace, we'll get back to it in February. Uh, we want to make sure we do not uh, get COVID to any of our older people. And so our Sojourners Luncheon, unfortunately, will be canceled for the month of January. Uh, we will kind of play it by ear regarding our business meeting voting. Voting will start next week. We'll be on the 30th. If we need to extend that into February, we can do so. Uh, but that'll take place over the next two Sunday mornings, and the voting will take place at that same time. On the 30th, we have two men. I mentioned this in our training hour. If you listen to that, uh, two men, Alex Garner and Seth Daniel from down in Salyersville, Kentucky. They're planting Christ Community Church in Prestonsburg. They'll be with us to share their burden with us that day. Ladies, we have the second installment of our Exodus Bible study. That will be beginning several items there in the bulletin uh, and also in the email that you can look to to make sure you have all the details for that. Several other items here that have come out on our uh, bullet or email as well. Uh, I trust that that will be of help to you. Our catechism today is the Baptist Catechism that we're working through this year. It is question number four, a great question, a great response. What is the Word of God? Those who are here, please join in. At home, you can listen. The scriptures of the Old and New Testaments being given.
given by divine inspiration are the Word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Let us pray. Or no, let's take a moment to meditate upon this great truth of God's glorious Word, one of the great ordinary means of grace that God has given to us as we prepare to worship. stand those who are here today as I read Psalm 46 as a passage of scripture to call our hearts to worship such always an appropriate passage but in our time and this uh, it is so appropriate so you listen let God use it to strengthen and call your heart to him God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, through the, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and behold the works of the Lord. He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Sung by faith. 
Portions of scriptures we normally do. The first is from First uh, John, or not First John, the Gospel of John, chapter two, dealing with the wedding feast. I'm going to pass over that. Encourage you to read it. Uh, a glorious, glorious text, uh, distributor, certainly showing forth the power of our Lord. I'd like to skip to the second text, which is Paul's letter to the church at Rome portion there in chapter 12 that we often call the one another section such a good reminder leading us into praying for our church family let love be genuine abhor what is evil hold fast to what is good love one another with brotherly affection outdo one another in showing honor do not be slothful in zeal but be fervent in spirit serve the Lord Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Let's pray. Our Father, we 
are so very grateful for the practical instruction of your word. We're even more grateful for the grace that you bestow upon us through the ministry of your Holy Spirit who indwells us to bear the fruit of your character, of your person in our lives. I pray, Father, that we would always be a people that love one another here at Randolph Street, the greater body of Christ, Lord, that we show forth your love to all people. I would ask, God, that you would help us to always have the right attitude toward one another. Lord, there are times that we disagree on things that are not biblical in nature, in our culture. Lord, let us be humble. Let us care. Let us Lord, show honor to others. Let us live peaceably with one another. I pray, God, that we would have the wisdom to always keep the gospel foremost in our mind. Help us to understand that you have called us, Lord, to love you first and foremost. Lord, that we would bear witness of Christ and show forth his glory in this world in which we live. Pray, Father, that we would not be overtaken by evil, but, Lord, that which is good would overtake evil in our lives. We thank you for Christ, for the salvation he has granted to us. I pray, Lord, for the many people in our church that are dealing with hardships, many who are walking through physical difficulties for a variety of reasons, some who have battled cancer, and, Lord, we pray by your kind grace in their life that you would restore them to health. I pray, Lord, even as it's difficult to understand this, but we know it is such a part of our walk with you, that everything that you bring into our lives would help shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would embrace those things, be able to give thanks for those things, knowing that you are working in us a far more exceeding weight of glory as we will see you someday. I pray, Father, that you would help us to reach out to those who are hurting, those who weep, might we weep with them. Lord, those who have suffered loss, have to deal with that. I pray, God, that your hand of mercy and blessing and grace would be upon them. Lord, might your word fill our hearts. Might it dwell in us richly. Might it result in us singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Might it result in us encouraging our own hearts, encouraging others through your holy word. Father, we thank you for the infallible word. We thank you, Lord, that you moved upon the writers of Scripture to pin that which was in your heart for us. And so, God, we pray that you would help us as a body to function well together. Help us as a body to care well for one another. Help us as a body to embrace missions regionally and globally. Help us to give, to sacrifice, to care for one another, and, Lord, to set forth the gospel to the nations. So, Lord, we thank you, we praise you, asking, Lord, that you would move in our midst this day in a way that it would bring glory to your name. Amen. Please stand and sing. What a 
Good morning, Randolph Street. Those of you who have gathered here this morning, those of you joining us at home, uh, we uh, are so thankful for you and for your commitment to the local body here. Uh, this has been an unusual day for us, obviously. Thank you for your patience with us, those of you at home, those of you here. Uh, many of you hopefully received the church email uh, where we encouraged you to, to not be here but I'm glad you are here. As a matter of fact, I was sitting there thinking, for those of you who ignored our church email, uh, you get 50% off at the bookstore today. That's your reward for persevering and coming out in the midst of all that is going on. But uh, this brings back so many memories. Tim and I were reflecting earlier of some of those COVID days where it was me and Tim and 
Sean and Greg in this room on Sunday mornings for a few weeks and uh, speaking and singing to an empty room. Uh, so we're very grateful you are here. The folks at home are like, wait, wait, you told us to stay home, but you're giving them a 50% discount, whatever. So Acts chapter 4 and 5, I'm not going to read the whole sermon text this morning. I'm going to read kind of the bookends of our text to give you a little flavor of what's coming in the midst of Acts chapter 5. So if you open your Bibles to Acts 4, we're going to read um, the end of chapter 4. And then we're going to skip over, I'm sorry, chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. That's where we're going to begin. This is the bookends of our text. Chapter 5, verse 12, we're going to read through verse 16. Then we're going to go down to the end of chapter 5 and read just a few verses there. So together, let's hear the word of the Lord. Acts 5, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with the unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now let your eyes linger all the way down to verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray together. Well, Father, as we gather in this room and in homes throughout the Canal Valley this morning, though this Lord's Day is rather unusual for us, we want this moment to have its same effects upon us, that as the word is preached, oh God, you would work in us through your spirit. And now in this room and in those homes, you would continue to conform us more and more into the image of Christ, form his character and his will in us this morning through your word, Father. So I pray that as families are gathering around TVs and those here in this room, we would have hearts and minds that are open and receptive. We would have clear thinking. We would have receptive hearts today as your word goes forth. And Father, I would pray if there would be any unbelievers who would be listening in this morning, that you would use your word this morning to do that work that only you are able to do. Father, grant repentance and grant faith today that on this unusual Lord's Day, there might be some who would come to faith in Christ, have their sins forgiven, and be declared children of the Most High God. So Lord, do that good work in us today as we gather and open your word. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.
I hope that came across in your living rooms like it did here. Thank you, Greg, for ministering to us this morning. Well, with your Bibles open, notepads in your lap, pen in your hand, uh, we're going to dig into chapter 5. I checked the weather forecast a little while ago, and we've got plenty of time, right, to step into Acts chapter 5 this morning before the weather begins to hit, I hope. Uh, we're going to be focusing this morning on a rather extended text, verses 17 through verse 42. I read at the beginning there a few moments ago, I read for us uh, that little section from verse 12 through 16, just kind of set the atmosphere to kind of set the tone for this particular narrative that we're getting ready to step into. And I, and I wanted to read the back end of this narrative so that you would feel kind of the contrast, if you will, this moment of the apostles and doing signs and wonders, moving from that all the way to the end of this narrative. They're being beaten, they've been arrested, and they're being threatened. And just, just to feel that, that's the narrative that we're stepping into today. Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 42. This text is not just extended. You're going to see this as we step into it today. It's a rather quick-paced narrative. And this author, as we, as we step into this, he, he's not really going to slow down much. He, he's going to step into this scene without a lot of moments of, of, of reflection or commentary. Uh, Luke here has details that he's going to put before us and he's going to move this narrative along. And we're going to go from scene to scene to scene. And Luke's just going to chase those scenes. And he's going to move us through them. And I think we're going to come back to the end of this and hopefully see some helpful reflection from what Luke has for us this morning. Just, just a word to you, the readers, those here online. Um, when you read these narratives, try to stay connected to the moment. And this is... It's going to be an interesting narrative for us. Last week with Ananias and Sapphira, that was, that was an interesting narrative. But you want to step into their shoes. You, you want to experience what they are experiencing in this moment. You know, stay connected to these narratives. And you're going to see as we move through this narrative today, there's going to be incredibly intense moments. It's, it's going to be filled with drama and awkwardness, if you will. Try to stay connected as we walk through today's passage. Here's your outline if you're taking notes this morning. We're going to look at four scenes in this particular narrative. Um, again, it's long, it's lengthy, but if you're taking notes, here they are. We're going to see first a confrontation and a deliverance. That's verses 17 through 21a. There's going to be a confrontation right at the beginning of this narrative coming out of what we just read a few moments ago about signs and wonders. We're going to see a meeting and a discovery, verses 21b through 26. We're going to hear some questioning that's going to be put before the apostles. And in that questioning, verses 27 through 40, we're going to see two responses. And so they're going to, they're going to lodge some questions at the apostles. And, and Peter's going to rise up and give a response. And, and a very influential Pharisee is going to rise up and give a response in this narrative. And then lastly, we're going to see the apostles' response. And really, it equals suffering and rejoicing. That's verses 41 and 42. I read that just a moment ago. So we're going to see confrontation, deliverance. We're going to see a meeting and a discovery, questioning and responses. And finally, the apostles' Response, suffering and rejoicing. So let's step into this text together this morning. We're going to read through it as I uh, work through it. So verse number 17, this confrontation and deliverance. 
The high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy, and they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. So in this moment, when we saw just a few moments ago, we read verses 12 through 16 and these miraculous moments that are happening throughout Jerusalem and and the crowds are gathering, they're bringing the sick and those who are demon-possessed and they're bringing to the apostles these, these individuals. Remember that Peter's shadow might even pass over them. That is the moment now the high priest is going to step into and he's going to intervene. It's such a sharp contrast. If you go back to verse number 16 again, just let your eyes linger back to that. The people gathered from towns around Jerusalem and they were bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all healed. And in that moment, verse 17, the high priest rises up. You don't expect this in the narrative, right? But the high priest now is going to rise up. And we're going to see throughout this narrative, this high priest is going to step in and he has one desire. He wants to stop this movement. This movement of Christianity that has taken root in Jerusalem. This high priest now, he wants to step into that and he wants to bring it to a halt now, not later. He wants it to come to its end now. The high priest here that is being referred to is either Caiaphas, who was the current high priest, Or it's the former high priest who actually is Caiaphas' father-in-law by the name of Annas. Annas was a high priest from 86 to 8015. He was removed from this particular role by Roman officials. High priests carried a unique role within the people of Israel. It's obvious even back to chapter 4. If you go back to chapter 4, when the high priest intervened again, it was Annas who was the one who is focused on in that particular text, or one of the individuals that is focused on. Annas had an influence among the Jewish people even after he was removed. When we were preaching through the Gospel of John in John chapter 19, when Jesus was arrested that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, what, what kind of surprises us in John chapter 19, and only John records this, is that the first trial Jesus would stand, it's kind of an informal trial, but the first trial that Jesus would stand before would be this trial before the former high priest of Annas. Under Roman control, the high priest carried much authority. He was really the most significant political leader among the Jewish people. So in this moment, what we have here is, as this movement of Christianity is now sweeping through Jerusalem, thousands have been converted. The high priest, the most significant political figure among the Jewish people, he is going to stand up with one intention, and that is to bring this movement to its end. So notice in verse number 18, if you let your eyes linger back down, they arrest all of the apostles. We could assume here this is all 12 of them, including Matthias. In chapter 4, they arrested just Peter and John, imprisoned them for a short overnight stay. But, but here in chapter 5, in this moment that, that, that this movement is now sweeping through Jerusalem, they approach all of the apostles and they arrest all of the apostles. And we see here persecution is beginning to really intensify. What happens in chapter 4 is going to pale in comparison to now what is happening in chapter 5 and following chapters. All the apostles are going to be arrested. They're going to be placed in this public prison. 
And if, you, and if you remember back down in verse number 40, the text that I read a few moments ago, they are going to be beaten before they are released. This narrative here of this early Jerusalem persecution is going to continue intensifying and advancing all the way up really to chapter 7. And it is there we're going to see Stephen, who will be stoned to death by these officials. What's interesting, and just flip in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, verse number 1. This persecution, as it intensifies with Stephen's death kind of being the apex in this early Jerusalem conflict. In chapter 8, verse number 1, there's, there's, a, there's a transition now. And Saul approved of his execution, verse number 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So that's, that's the scene here. This is what all of this is moving, for, moving forward to. When we're in chapter 5 and we're seeing this, this moment of the high priest and him rising up and opposing the apostles, everything is now moving here to the end of chapter 7 and that first little statement in chapter 8 when we see Saul approving of Stephen's execution. Look down at verse number 17, back to chapter 5. What's behind this move for the high priest and this council here, the Sadducees, to stand up and oppose these men? You see it in verse number 17, and, and Luke records this for us. They are filled with jealousy. Again, this is Luke. He, he's looking up on all this scene. He's, he's gathering information about what all has happened here. He, he notes here that these, these leaders, these Jewish religious leaders, they are, they are raging with jealousy. I mean, we looked at this last week. The, the church in Jerusalem was exploding. At this particular point in the narrative, there are thousands of followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. And from Pentecost, many of those followers, they've spread out all over Judea and Samaria and Galilee. Signs and wonders were occurring right there on the streets of Jerusalem from the hands of men like Peter and John. The, the community of Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem, they were looking up on the apostles with favor. And the religious leaders in this moment, instead of these miracles softening their hearts and drawing them to Christ, the results of these miracles and signs and wonders is that their hearts are hardened. They're not filled with what we would hope, right? Repentance or worship and adoration and praise. Instead, these religious leaders, they're filled with jealousy. There's so many contrasts in these early chapters of Acts. And really, as you move through all of Acts, we're going to see a lot of contrast. And, and here's one of them. Remember in Acts chapter 4, we brought this out last week. Acts chapter 4, the, the early church, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Near the end, matter of fact, it's, it's right near the end of chapter 4. Luke notes this. This is what characterizes the early church. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what Jesus promised them back in Acts chapter 1. This is exactly what happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The, the early church, what characterized them, they were filled with the Spirit of God. And then last week, we had a contrast, didn't we? The, when we, when we looked at the narrative with Ananias and Sapphira and how Luke characterized them, what Peter said to them, he was filled with Satan. Right, our adversary. And just that, that stark contrast between the early church and Ananias and Sapphira. Someone asked me last week, so, so are you saying that they were unbelievers? And my answer, I think, was something to the effect, I have, I have no idea. 
I have no idea, but the contrast couldn't be greater between Ananias and Sapphira and the early church. The church is filled with the spirit of Ananias and Sapphira. They're filled with the schemes and the ploys of Satan. And then here it is again. We see a contrast rise up. These religious leaders step into this moment and they're not filled with repentance or filled with worship of Jesus, but instead they're filled with jealousy. These signs and wonders have not softened the hearts. They instead have hardened their hearts. Look at what happens in verse number 19 after the apostles are arrested. And this, During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. This angel of the Lord, we're going to see this throughout the book of Acts. We're going to see it at least on five or six occasions where the angel of the Lord is an instrument of God to be used either to deliver his people in certain moments or to communicate something very important to them in the book of Acts. Angels are going to appear multiple times. Here in this particular narrative, the angel comes and he opens or he at least delivers the apostles from this particular prison. He frees them. We move through the book of Acts. There are going to be moments where deliverance will come. And there will be moments where deliverance does not come. We're going to see at times God deliver from imprisonment. We're going to see that with Peter in Acts chapter 12. We're going to see it with Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. But there's going to be other moments where God does not miraculously intervene and deliver his people. Paul, for example, is going to face multiple imprisonments at times for years, and God does not deliver Paul in those moments. That's just a, a, a theological tension that we're going we're to wrestle with as we move through the book of Acts. At times, God steps in and God miraculously delivers. That's what happens here in Acts chapter 5. But there are other moments where God does not step in and God holds, if you will, back his deliverance in that moment. Notice here the angels, this angel, he issues what we could call a command to the apostles in verse number 20. He says, go, he delivers them, and he says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So again, it's easy for us to be disconnected from this, and because of the rapid pace of the narrative, not to step in and see this moment. These apostles have been arrested. Confrontation has happened. They've been taken and placed in a public prison. And now in the midst of that moment, this angel of the Lord comes and he delivers them. And immediately he says to them, you go and you go back to that temple. You stand where you are and you speak these words of this life. And there's no rest for the weary in this narrative. The angel is going to send these men right back into the furnace. They're going to go right back into the place where they were arrested and they are commanded here to speak the words of this life. I think we can rightly assume that little phrase, words of this life, simply point us to the truth of Jesus and the gospel. I mean, he delivers them. Surely there was some scratching of heads going on, right? What, you delivered us from this prison just to send us right back out to where we were arrested? And and notice what they do in verse number 21 to to keep with this rapid pace. When they heard this, there seems to be no hesitation on their part. They entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. 
We don't know what Tom the angel delivered them from this prison experience, but it, it feel here, the feel of the narrative is there's an immediate response of the, of, of the disciples. They go straight to, from prison to the place, uh, place of the original crime at daybreak. There they are during the time of prayer, and they stand before the people of Israel, and they boldly teach about Jesus. Let's move to verse 21. There's going to be a meeting that's taking place. While the apostles are teaching in the temple complex, the high priest is going to summons the council, the Sanhedrin, to gather. Verse 21b, when the high priest came, those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. So early the next morning, the high priest convenes this meeting, and it seems to be in the narrative here that the first item on the agenda for this particular meeting was to call these men from the prison and to address their disobedience, what they were doing in the context of Jerusalem. But there would be a problem. We see it right here. There would be a problem, verse number 22, when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison and they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. When we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And at that moment, someone came in and they told them, look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and they are teaching the people. Now, at this point, you would think as a reader that these religious leaders, now they've got to recognize this is the work of God. I mean, there was specificity in that initial report, right? The, the doors were locked. The guards, they were standing at the door. And when we unlock the door, the guards unlock the door, we go in and they are not there. And the religious leaders, they're wrestling with this information. And while they're wrestling with that information, someone else runs in and says, hey, the people you put in prison, they're standing in the temple and they're preaching about Jesus. This is the moment you would think, maybe, the religious leaders would bow their knees before Christ. But instead, they send out guards to arrest the apostles again. But notice verse number 26. They're being a little bit more careful this time. The captain with the officers went, and they brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So these religious leaders are now concerned because the crowds are being so receptive of the apostles and their message. And the reasoning is this, or their thought process is this. If we, if we go out into the temple complex now, during this time of prayer, and we arrest these apostles, these men, we take them by force, there's, there's a fear that rises up in them that there would be a revolt of the people of Jerusalem. I mean, they even say here at the end of verse number 26, they were afraid of being stoned. I mean, the, the momentum, if you will, in Jerusalem at this particular moment was on the side of the apostles. And that doesn't surprise us as we think back to that little section in verses 12 through 16. Miracles are happening. Signs and wonders were going forth. The crowds were listening and they were gathering. All the while, the religious leaders, they were raging with jealousy over all that was occurring. So they send these officers back out. They go to take them, not by force, but to bring them back to the Sadducees 
I mean, you could only see that moment, right, in the temple complex. I mean, here you, you're an officer. You've been told by the chief priest, go get him. And you walk out, and there's Peter, and there's John. There's Matthias. They're, they're maybe spread out across the temple complex, and they're, they've got little groups around them, maybe. And they're, they're preaching Jesus. They're showing the gathered crowds there in the temple complex. That, the, that all of the Old Testament was pointing to this one, and, and here he is, and the crowds are listening, they're engaged, and here comes this, this officer or these officers. Hey, would you guys mind maybe just coming with us? They don't take them by force. They go and they, they ask them, will you come and meet with the Sadducees? And, they, and we're going to see it now in verse 27 and following. They, they voluntarily return, which is interesting. They, they willingly come back. They, they could have withstood it there in the temple complex and, and the crowds would have been on their side. Verse 27. This is the questioning and the responses. Verse 27, they brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest, he questioned them. I mean, this is, Peter and John just stood here not long before this in Acts chapter 4. You remember that moment when they were being questioned by the high priest? By what power had they done these things? These things being healing of the lame man who sat in the temple for decade after decade after decade begging for money. And now here they are, not just two of them, but we, I think we can assume here all 12 of them standing before these religious authorities and the high priest, the most revered authority among the Jewish people, he has questions for them. And notice what he says, what he charges them with in verse number 28. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. They don't even say Jesus here, which is interesting. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you are, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. What's obvious here is that they banned the teaching and preaching of Jesus in Jerusalem. They wanted nothing of Christ taught among the Jewish people. But, but notice what they say here in this particular charge. These apostles, they have filled Jerusalem with their teaching. I mean, this is just really a few short weeks, we might say. Months. And what has occurred now here among this early church, among the apostles, is they have filled not just the upper room or a small area of Jerusalem. They have filled all of Jerusalem with this doctrine, with the teaching of the gospel. I mean, these men in this moment, they're, they're taking serious the command of Christ in the Great Commission, right? He told them, I want you to go and teach all men everywhere to observe everything I've taught you. Now here they are. I mean, it's just a natural outworking of the Great Commission. They're going to stand in the streets of Jerusalem they're going to gather in homes. They're going to be at this temple complex. Wherever crowds might be, there they are. And what's their objective? They're going to fill Jerusalem with the gospel. These men have an aim. They have a purpose. They are bent on this, and they are going to spread the gospel. Notice the end of verse number 28. These religious leaders say that you intend to bring this man's blood up on us. Now, now we're getting kind of the heart of their concern, right? Their concerns was that the crowds would see the Sanhedrin as responsible for the death of this innocent man. 
And these religious leaders, rightfully so, they were fearful of what might come as a result of the public's growing adoration of Jesus. You're going to fill Jerusalem with the teaching that this is the Christ, the Messiah, that he was crucified for our sins, that he was raised from the dead. You're going to fill Jerusalem with that kind of teaching. And you would hope in this moment, I keep saying this, you would hope in this moment those, those religious leaders would just say, we repent. But instead, they're, they're concerned here for their own reputation. This is, this is a self-preservation moment for these religious leaders. Their fear is that in this preaching, the crowds will look up on the religious leaders and they will know you killed an innocent man. You killed the Messiah. Peter responds first. There's going to be two responses to this accusation and this questioning. Verse 29. Peter responds first. We must, on behalf of the apostles, we must obey God rather than men. That's his first response. What have you done? You have filled Jerusalem with this teaching. What have you done? And Peter, it feels like it's just Peter here, but maybe all of them stands up at one time in this moment, and then they make it clear, listen, we're going to obey God not men. I mean, this is the basic principle of life, not only for the apostles, but likewise for us. We obey God over man. Here, if rules or laws of men contradict that which God has clearly commanded, the apostles rise up and they obey God. Jesus had been clear with them. The one who has authority over all things. The one who had been given authority by his father over all things. He commanded them. You go to the nations. And a part of that was this. You teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. That was the command of God that had been placed up on their lives. And in the minds of these apostles, there was no option. You've said to us not to preach about Jesus. We will obey God over you. Now hear me out on this. God has ordained structures and authority over us in life. All right, we, we, we were wrestling with some of this through COVID, right? As a church, we, our elders, we've wrestled through that very issue. God has ordained structures and authority over us and our lives. And we are called in the scriptures to the best of our ability to obey the authorities that God has placed over us. And we would go so far as saying this, when we obey the authority that God has placed over us, we're obeying God. But, and this is, this is where this narrative is very helpful for us, if that human authority opposes that which God has clearly commanded, then the decision for God's people is absolutely clear. We obey God. And that is the declaration that Peter sets before this council. Christ has commanded us. You have commanded us. We obey Christ. And they pin their ears back. And they hit those streets. And they hit that temple complex. And they hit homes. And they absolutely fill Jerusalem with the gospel. 
And notice Peter here, he's not going to stop. He's not going to let the religious leaders off the hook. Remember, they were concerned about this man's blood being up on us. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. I mean, Peter's not going to let them off the hook. I mean, he's just bold. He's standing before these religious leaders. You killed him. You placed him on that tree. But, but notice the summary here, this theology that, that just oozes out of Peter and the apostles in this particular moment, right? God raised him. You killed him. God raised him. And then verse number 31, God has exalted him to his right hand. I mean, just such boldness rises up only because of the Spirit of God who lives in Peter and these apostles. This boldness rises up in them, and they stand before these authorities who have said, do not preach in this man's name. And he responds by saying, these men respond by saying, whoa, 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 this man whom you killed by hanging on a tree, God raised him up, and he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father. And look at verse, look at verse 32. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey, obey him. I mean, Peter here, he just got this sense of, no, I've seen this. I, I can't remain silent about this truth. We cannot remain silent about this truth. Yes, he was crucified, but he's been raised from the dead and he's exalted to the right hand of the Father. This is the one that the entire Old Testament was leading us to. And Peter says here in verse 32, we have witnessed all of these things. The, the emphasis here is I must preach about this. The accusation, though true, that Peter levels toward the Sanhedrin it doesn't lower the temperature in the room. Look at verse 33. When they heard this, speaking of the Sanhedrin, the council, the high priest, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Again, move yourself into the narrative and feel. Don't, don't you hate awkward meetings where, where something hard needs to be said and when it happens, there is just such tension that fills the room. This is, this is a moment. And these religious leaders, when they hear these words, their heart is full of rage and hate, and they want these men dead. So Peter's response doesn't lower the temperature. It increases it. Now, there's a second response in this little narrative. Right? A Pharisee, Gamaliel, He's going to step into this moment. He's a very respected Pharisee. Luke's going to say in verse number 34 that he's held in honor by all the people. He would be a Pharisee, scholars say, some, somewhere about 25 years in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, Paul learned from this particular Pharisee. It says in Acts chapter 22, verse number 3, he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Something about feet in their acts. Gamaliel here gives counsel with a short history lesson and a recommendation in this particular moment. And, and in this, we're going to read it in just a moment. In this, we're going to see some really good theology. Look at verse 34. A Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up 
And he gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So, so tension is high. This particular Pharisee steps into the moment. All right, let's, let's get these men out of the room. We need to talk, okay? He sees the rage. He sees the jealousy. He sees the anger. They remove the men from the room, verse 35. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care of what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him, and he was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Just a little history lesson. Verse 37. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, so two little history lessons here from this particular Pharisee. Has this happened before? There's been men rise up, and, and they've gathered crowds, but listen, they were killed, and the, the crowds have scattered. I mean, his emphasis here is this. Jesus was killed. So if, if history repeats itself, these, these followers, they will quiet down. They, they will scatter in due time. Look down at verse number 38. So in this present case, I'll tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. That's what they've seen. And then here's the good theology, verse 39. But if it, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. As a matter of fact, he says, you might even be found opposing God. So you could probably say a lot about this particular Pharisee. He's pragmatic, right? He's sensible. Hey, let's, let's just be patient. We've seen this happen before in Jerusalem. We've seen this happen before among our people. Let's just give it some time. If it is not of God, it will fail. And his disciples, they will be scattered. And everything you're worried about in this particular moment will end. But if it is of God, there is nothing, there is no strategy or manipulation or plans that you could conceive of. You can hear him saying this to the council. There's nothing you can do that can undermine this work. As a matter of fact, you very well might be opposing God. Some good theology there. Well, the council took his advice verse 30, at the end of verse 39. Kanda. They called in the apostles. And you can imagine that silence probably had filled the room. I mean, how can you refute what this Pharisee had said? And you can almost see the high priest saying, okay, bring the men back in. And they bring them back in. And they beat them. And they charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. They had taken his advice they let them go. But even in taking his advice, their jealousy and their, their rage could not be contained. And they double down. They not only charge the disciples once again, don't you dare speak in the name of Jesus. We're going we're gonna to let you go. But don't you dare speak in the name of Jesus. But, but beyond that, they beat these men. I mean, when these apostles walk out of this hearing, they leave with marks on them. You speak in this name again, you'll suffer. I'm not so sure this, pun this was a punishment for what they had already done, as much as it was a warning, don't do this again. 
And then they just let them go. And the disciples leave. They do not leave this moment with their tails tucked between their legs. They don't whine. They don't complain. They don't go off on how their freedom has been abused. They don't go out trying to generate a crowd to rush the Sanhedrin. Instead, verse 41, in Randolph Street for our day, let's breathe this kind of language in deeply. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And look at verse 42. Every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So, so what, what do they do? What's their response? They suffer, they rejoice, and they return to the gospel work that Jesus had called them to. I mean, they, they suffer here. We, we don't know to what extent they were beaten in this particular moment, but they were beaten at the hands of ungodly men. I mean, this was unjust, to say the least. But notice their response. They rejoice. And they return to gospel work. It's almost as if the beating and the injustice energized them anew. I mean, what we find here in verse number 42 is that they're not just in the temple proclaiming Christ. They're going from home to home, and they are not going to cease teaching that Jesus is the Christ. They fill Jerusalem, and they continue to fill Jerusalem. They are preaching the gospel everywhere after being beaten, and that is only by the power of the Spirit. I love the phrase in verse number 41. They suffered dishonor for the name. I love that language. Jesus had suffered for them, and they were not shocked that they would now suffer for him, for his cause, and for his glory. Acts, I'm praying, will be good for us here at Randolph Street in these days. Just to kind of recalibrate our hearts. Maybe help us have a better view of what true suffering is. What it is not. To, To maybe see better what true persecution is and what it is not. And maybe even more importantly, to know as a people how to respond to suffering or how not to respond to suffering. These men in this early church, when they suffered, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. What a humble disposition. What a disposition of servanthood. In your annual packet this year, you're going to see, and those annual packets are available, right, Tim, on the back table. Please grab one when you leave. If you're not here this morning, we're going to get, hopefully, maybe an attachment to your email and get these sent out to you this week. If not, they'll be available the next few weeks for you. In your annual packet this year, you're going to see that as part of our proposals, is that we bring on three new efforts, missions, works, directed toward unreached people groups. This adds to a current effort we have now in East Asia. 
These proposals include a work in Northern Africa of Bible translation among unreached people groups in two particular countries of Northern Africa with unreached people groups. It also includes two more groups of workers who are going into very difficult places of Southeast Asia. And these two particular groups, they're going in with a desire that eventually among certain unreached people groups, there would be a healthy local church proclaiming the gospel, present, active, engaged, scriptures, it's a big vision. It's multiple families. I was so moved this week as I prepped the annual packet that you're going to have in your hands. How many times I typed in our packet, we cannot print their names because of security issues. That's because these men and women are leaving and going to places that are not receptive of the gospel. Just like these men when they returned to that temple complex that day. They knew they were returning to a place not receptive to the gospel. A couple of weeks ago, I've got the information, gathered the information about these particular teams. This is a part of that to to the end of the earth campaign that we engaged in for the last few months. In that campaign, you raised over $20,000 that are going to be directed specifically to unreached people groups. One of these families wrote these words. The goal of our team is to expend our lives living fully for God's glory by his grace and in his strength. The way that we have decided to take up this task is to give ourselves in labor to see a healthy, biblical, indigenous church established among a language group, among a language group in, and he lists the country. And he follows up, this people group does not have access to the gospel. And then these two families laid out a 20-year plan. They're going to invest everything they have. Their lives. One family's already on the field. And you look at the pictures of these families. Two of them, there's seven children. And they see their lives as individuals, followers of Jesus, as expendable for the gospel. And they're going to go. That's the spirit here of Acts chapter 5. And and listen, I'm not calling you to the mission field this morning. But as one of your pastors to catch the flavor of what's happening here in the early church, I am calling you to expend your life for the glory of Christ in a dark and depressing world that we live in today. And maybe, maybe for you, for most of us, it's going to be right here in Appalachia, the seat of hopelessness in our particular country. And we are here by God's grace, and we have the gospel, and the, and the authority of Christ rests up on us just like it rested up on those apostles. And we take that gospel, and we preach that gospel, as our little network of churches is saying, 
We spread the glory of God in Christ to every hill and hollow in Appalachia. And that's on us. And what we've been praying for in the book of Acts through narratives like this is that that would be pressed deeper and deeper into our hearts. And here at Randolph Street, we, we, we hear this and we say, okay, we want to fill the West Side with the gospel. We, we want to fill Appalachia with the gospel. We want to engage with missionaries and, and fill the nations with the gospel. But what I want you to hear as we wrap up this little text here in Acts chapter 5 is this. The call that was up on the apostles, that call is up on us. And now we expend our lives to see that gospel go. That Christ Jesus, the one who died for us, even though we may suffer in that, he might receive the glory of all the nations. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we want this text and these passages to rest strongly upon our hearts today. Lord, we want to hear your word here in Acts chapter 5. And we want your spirit to press these truths deeply into our souls so that as we think about the church, as we think about our lives, we would not be distracted or caught up in the games of this world, but instead have hearts and minds given to the cause of Christ here on the west side of Charleston, throughout Appalachia and to the nations. Lord, may this gospel truth absolutely consume us. And may we, like these men, invest every aspect of our life to see the truth of Jesus Christ be proclaimed here and abroad. So, Lord, as we walk into our annual meetings these next couple